Hi, I'm Andrew. I'm Kirsten. And this is Most Foul. Hell yeah. Yeah. Welcome back. John List Part 2 today. Yeah. And so... For y'all, it's been a week. For us, it's been five minutes. So we're still <laughs> we're still kind of in the zone. And like we sometimes do, I think we should just skip over banter. What do you think and get right to it? I agree. Okay, so picking up right where we left off, officers had just found the bodies of the List family in the ballroom of their Westfield, New Jersey home. They called in investigators and... As they went through the house, they found lots of evidence, obviously, gruesomeness. A lot of the officers reported later that they never in their entire career saw a scene like this. Well, yeah, I mean, not like murder aside, the meticulousness, the yeah. weirdness, the music, the 50 degrees, the them all on sleeping bags, it's like... Haunt you to the day you die type of stuff. It's the definition of creepiness, for sure. And I think the music in particular was pretty chilling for everyone who went through the initial scene. When investigators entered List's office, they found something that was so intensely strange. And I mean, it's hard to, I would imagine, be shocked at something after just finding five bodies lined up in a row. But what they found just, you know, surprised them so much. They, they found six notes that were neatly taped to different drawers of his filing cabinets and his desk. Each note they found explained what was inside the particular drawer and how to access it. So again, I mean, he's laying this all out as if it were some kind of project at work, right? It's like he's handing off a project now Mm -hmm. to other people. So he's written up operating instructions. One of the drawers contained the murder weapons and ammunition, Another contained a manila envelope with five letters to various family members and associates. The different drawers contained different things along these lines. Mm -hmm. But in that manila folder, or in that manila envelope, one of the five letters was a five-page handwritten confession that he had addressed to Reverend Eugene Redwinkle of the Redeemer Lutheran Church, their family church. The confession included the twisted logic behind his acts, i.e. saving their souls, protecting them from the pain of poverty, etc., etc. And he even stated in this letter that he felt that the reverend, even if he couldn't condone his actions, was one of the only people in the world who could understand them. Whether that was the case or not, I don't know. But Mm -hmm. he felt like he was at least speaking to someone who could make some sense of his logic. He also shared with the reverend that he had prayed over the bodies after killing them, and he said, quote, it was the least he could do, end quote, right? <laughs> yeah, so, it fucking is. <laughs> but it's like, you know, he's, it's just so bizarre because it's like the weirdness and the irony and, and like the pathos of it, and he doesn't seem to get it. Mm-hmm. He also mentioned in the letter that he originally wanted to kill them all on All Souls Day, which is November 1st, but his travel plans had been delayed. So it kind of puts a different spin on the whole Halloween party thing. Oh, I didn't even think of that. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's pretty obvious that he was in some way trying to give them this thing that he knew that they wanted as kind of a parting gift or some kind of thing Mm -hmm. to them but ultimately even with five handwritten pages the confession just couldn't explain the inexplicable and more disturbing than anything list was nowhere to be found and they now knew because the letters were dated he had a four-week lead on investigators Mm mm-hmm So again, as I said in the last episode, my intent here is not to 
kind of judge people in in hindsight because that's really unfair. And we're talking about a time when the term mass murder had only ever been applied to cases of genocide. And the label family annihilator, which now most people have at least heard of, that wouldn't be coined for another 15 years. So this case was heinous in a way that the country just was not familiar with. Mm -hmm. And it got a tremendous amount of attention. And the FBI started a global manhunt for lists pretty much immediately. Tips led agents all over the country to South America, Canada. But Liss' meticulous planning and huge head start gave him an advantage that they just couldn't overcome. So days turned to weeks, which turned to months, which eventually turned to years. And List had seemingly vanished without a trace. Which pre-internet was a thing that you could do, right. which is crazy. Totally. And pre-kind of identity lockdown, I mean, you could just get a new identity just by, you know, applying for a social security card and say that you're ex. Or you could get jobs without showing proof of identity. I mean, it was... Or lots of things was just a social security number of somebody who had died and you just like looked at the county courthouse. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, compared to the, the world that we know now, it would have been a pretty simple matter to recreate yourself back then. But investigators never forgot and they never gave up. Every tip was followed. Every sighting was taken seriously and they did get tips and sightings over the years but nothing that led to his apprehension. So now fast forward back to 1989, the Sunday night, suburban Rhode Island, Kirsten should have been doing homework or something productive. <laughs> <laughs> America's Most Wanted, a relatively new show, like I said, on a new network. It was doing okay, but it was certainly not a hit at that point. Um, I was just a weirdo and liked watching stuff like that. The show was initially really dismissed by law enforcement as fluff. But after a capture, which stemmed from their first episode, police and other agencies began to take notice. Mm -hmm. Investigators from the FBI and the Westfield PD approached the producers of the show about featuring the list case in the hopes of at last capturing him and getting some justice for his family. One real impediment to the search for lists, which I didn't mention earlier, was the fact that before he fled Westfield, he went around his house and cut his face out of every picture of himself in the house. So investigators had no recent photos of him to distribute to the public or to give people a sense of what he looked like at that time. So again, he knew all of this without... A true crime boom right without the internet like it, he as an accountant like how i mean i guess that's how his brain worked but to be smart enough to get rid of every photo of yourself and i guess it is kind of basic but like holy shit the level of planning the meticulousness yeah completely and i think you know his upbringing or his nature or both basically stripped him of the kind of mental work of emotionally processing what he was about to do. Like, I think mm -hmm. a lot of maybe, I, I don't want to call him like neurodivergent because I, you know, I'm not a doctor, yada, yada. But I think that for most kind of neurotypical people, the, me the mental psychic strain of planning it, like, both logistically but also emotionally would take such a toll and that's where people make mistakes because all of their mental energy is not focused on do this do this do this don't make mistakes but for him mm -hmm. i don't think he had that i think once like he said once he clicked it in his mind and he made a he made a military comparison he said planning it once he made the decision doing it was like d-day like you don't once you decide that d-day is going to happen and when it is you move forward like you know he used that comparison when he talked yeah about i think it. you're resolved yeah. like 
you put the stress and the agony of the decision behind you and it's like, well, it's made. There's no way to undo it, even though you have a hundred percent control to undo it. You're just like, Well, done. Absolutely. Now I just got a plan. Absolutely. And we'll talk a little bit about, you know, what the shrinks, the actual shrinks, not me, the actual shrinks say about <laughs> him and his ability to do that. So with this big impediment of no current pictures, that was a very big stumbling block. So to solve for this problem, the team at America's Most Wanted decided to hire forensic artist Frank Bender to sculpt a bust of what List might look like at his current age. So Bender used not only photos of List when he was younger, but he also took photos of his father and his other family members when they were around 64, which is the age List would have been in 1989. Mm-hmm. He also familiarized himself with List's personality and habits, which he believed could influence how his face aged over time. So just immense, intense research and thought and consideration on top of just his artistic ability and understanding the structure of faces and things like that. Mm -hmm. So after dozens and dozens of hours of research and modeling, Bender had a bust he thought had a high likelihood of resembling List if List was even still alive, which is something that investigators didn't know for sure. But the last touch, and this is just so interesting to me. I watched a video on it. He had to find glasses for him. So even when he disappeared, List wore glasses. And so that was a decision he had to make that went beyond kind of the artistry of the bust. Mm -hmm. And so, again, using the psychological profile that he had of him, he chose a pair of glasses that he thought that someone, you know, who thought and lived and behaved like List did would wear. So the episode that featured Bender's bust aired, like I said, on May 21st, 1989. And before the show was even over, the show played live. This was like Mm -hmm. the 80s. It showed live. The tip line, which included some of the original investigators on the case, had a name. And that name was Robert P. Clark, a.k.a. Bob Clark. So... As the show is running, the agents debrief the tipster over the phone. I mean, this all sounds like so kind of made up now with the way Uh technology and media works now. (laughs) But it's like it's live. The tipsters are uh, the tipsters are talking to live agents on the phone. And until recently, the tipsters had been neighbors of Clark's in Denver, Colorado. According to her, Clark was a devout Lutheran who worked as an accountant. So, like, yeah, already. Ding, ding, ding. (laughs) She shared with the FBI pictures of Clark, who had attended her wedding some years earlier. And the investigators felt sure that this had to be their man. So they started laying the groundwork to apprehend Clark in Richmond, Virginia, where he was living with his wife, Dolores Miller, whom he had met at church. Imagine, though, (laughs) the. The like thrill, yeah, of oh. the invest. I mean, this case was cold, it so was, you're like, yeah, doing essentially a hail mary with totally. this uh, America's Most Wanted TV show, which was new. Like, yeah, it had the one success, but like, you have this hail mary. You get you're you getting the information from this tipster that's like, oh, they're a Lutheran, they're an accountant. I have photos of them. Yeah. Like the pieces starting to line up, even if it was false hope, but just like that thrill, it must have been wild. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. And I mean, it was a Hail Mary. And I think, again, the show is still pretty new. So even though I say agencies and officers started coming around, it for sure wasn't 100%. There were still naysayers that, you know, They couldn't crowdsource, essentially, Mm. the finding of fugitives. But when the FBI arrived to arrest Clark, he strenuously denied being John List. The creepy thing is, though, he looked so fucking exactly 100% like the bust. I mean, he was the mirror image down to those fucking glasses. It was the same glasses, Andrew. 
the same glasses. I mean, it was Frank Bender's like hero status, right? <laughs> uh huh. <laughs> well, that bust and America's Most Wanted is why I knew about the case. Right. Right. I mean, it's famous. It's yeah. I think it's why probably a really huge percentage of forensic scientists became forensic scientists. You know, it it kind of like brought it all to the mainstream. So he could deny being John List all he wanted, but his fingerprints were taken and quickly compared to List's military records. And of course they were a match. So after 18 years on the run, John List was finally in custody. Because the crime seemed at first blush to be so out of character for the outwardly mild-mannered List, he was assessed multiple times by psychiatrists, like I said earlier, and chief among them was psychiatrist Stephen Simring. Now, Dr. Simring, after all of his meetings and interviews and tests, diagnosed List with both PTSD from his time in combat and his brief time as a prisoner of war in Germany, as well as obsessive-compulsive personality disorder, a more severe and debilitating cousin of OCD, or obsessive-compulsive disorder. List's defense team made the argument that List was not responsible for his crimes due to mental defect, namely PTSD. But Simring and others opposed this interpretation. Instead, Simring concluded that it was actually his OCPD that led to his lack of success in all areas of his life and ultimately led to his crimes. OCPD is characterized by rigid black and white thinking. So again, back to that point of once you make a decision, it's done and you can't go back. It's Mm -hmm. very black and white. It also is characterized by deficient or completely absent social skills. So check a lack of empathy and an obsessive focus on minutia. All of these things obviously were present in list. Mm -hmm. Although Simmering stated that the pressures of family and work ultimately came to a head, causing him to quote, snap like a little rubber band end quote, he nonetheless concluded that he was legally sane at the time of the crimes and therefore could stand trial. Good. (laughs) In fact, He may have been brilliant, but as we so often see, he was also really dumb in some ways. Mm -hmm. In his confession to Reverend Redwinkle, he wrote very clearly that what he did was wrong and he knew it was wrong when he was doing it. Like he literally wrote that. (laughs) Yeah. What I did was wrong and I knew it as I was doing it. He wrote it in a letter. (laughs) The confession was ultimately deemed admissible in court, although they did try to have it thrown out based on, like, reverend, like, flock member privilege or whatever that's called. Yeah. It has a name. I don't know it. (laughs) And on April 12th, 1990, List was convicted on five counts of first-degree murder. At his sentencing hearing, List again appealed for mercy and denied full responsibility for his crimes because of his mental state at the time, though he was still without any real discernible remorse or sadness, and the judge just noped that right out of town. Before sentencing him to five consecutive life terms, which was the maximum allowable at the time, the judge had this to say, quote, John Emil List is without remorse and without honor. After 18 years, five months, and 22 days, it is now time for the voices of Helen, Alma, Patricia, Frederick, and John F. List to rise from the grave, end quote. Hell yeah. Right? I mean, that kind of like gets me a little choked up. Now, List's second wife, Dolores, had no inkling of the monster that she married, and she divorced him faster than you can say Holy Ghost. List spent the remainder of his pitiful life behind bars in New Jersey, and he died of pneumonia at the age of 82 on March 21, 2008. And in reporting his death, the local newspaper referred to him as the boogeyman of Westfield. 
But because I can never leave it at that, before <laughs> we switch over to your part, Andrew, during my research, I found two chilling little factoids that are going to extra make your stomach turn if you have any stomach left. First, if we could simplify all of this and say that financial problems were the root cause of everything, and that's a big if, but, you know, stay with me. If we could say that, it was later discovered that Breeze Knoll's ballroom, where Liz's family was found murdered, was adorned with a signed original Tiffany stained glass skylight. Some estimates put the 1970s value of the skylight at $100,000, or about $700,000 today. More than enough to solve the family's financial woes. It's fucked up. So fucked up. But again, back to that diagnosis, it's that rigid thinking that tripped him up time and time again. You know, when he got himself painted into a corner, he just couldn't see ways out other than his kind of like i don't know well and even skylight aside sell the whole house yeah i mean he only owed 11 grand and that huge house (laughs) surely must have been worth a lot more than that i know i know it's i know so the last little piece, and this one was new to me. I mean, the, the skylight is somewhat well-known. If you know this case, you probably have heard of that. But this last one I only found when I was reading through reports that came out at the time of the trial. It's been stated a lot in a lot of reports, and I think a lot of investigators made this assumption when they found the family, that his final act of turning down the thermostat in the house was meant as a kindness for his family. It prevented them from decomposing terribly before they were found. But during the FBI interrogation, List corrected this assumption. He explained to the agents that it was simply a matter of saving fuel while preventing the pipes from freezing and potentially bursting in the cold December weather. He reportedly didn't want to cause the bank any trouble in the foreclosure by allowing the pipes to burst. That's so much worse. Why is that gross as hell? Right? I mean, doesn't... It's so much worse. I mean, it's so much worse. Because it's like... Yeah. I I mean, in some ways, it kind of goes to the idea that maybe he was mentally incompetent. Because... How do you even compare the inconvenience that a bank would experience if the pipes burst to killing everyone in your family? Fucking awful. Right? Yeah. So that's that's the story. I mean, I find it fascinating because it's so hard to reconcile these different pieces you know of him and what he did and you know then the obvious thing of just how is how is a person ever driven to kill their own flesh and blood I mean I think that just on a visceral level for most people is nearly impossible to comprehend well I think this falls into the same vein as the draw of like sociopaths and psychopaths like if your brain doesn't work that way it's literally incomprehensible. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, well, if I lost my job, I wouldn't lie about it for six months. I would never buy extra. I mean, I'm, I, I'm cheap. But I wouldn't buy <laughs> like extra cars and just throw money at things. And then a mansion with a name. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's so... And, like, yeah, maybe his brain didn't allow him outside of that. But it's also just like, but fuck you. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And that's why I think it's just this confluence of things that led to it. You know, if this had happened differently, then maybe this wouldn't have happened. If this had happened differently, maybe, you know, I think there were all the stars were kind of aligned for tragedy in this case. Mm Mm-hmm. Damn. Mm-hmm. Well, moving the conversation over to the pop culture side. Yeah. The only place I felt like we could start was America's Most Wanted. Mm-hmm. So 
obviously both of us, probably most true crime enthusiasts. <laughs> Uh, I'm guessing we've all seen way too many episodes of (laughs) America's Most Wanted. (laughs) And as Kirsten said, it got off to a modest start in 1988. Um, The Fox Network was in itself pretty new at the time. Yeah. This type of show, like, I I think people didn't know what to think of it. Like, Like, you mentioned already, like, the cops saying it was fluff. It's like, well... What even is this show? Right, right. But then they got like a little bit of buzz because right off the bat, they helped solve a case. Mm-hmm. So the John List episode blew it out of the water. <laughs> <laughs> and so like we said, there's there was success already. They had a low-level case solved. There's, for all intents and purposes... America's Most Wanted would have continued, but it is, I believe, a fair assessment to say that it would not have blown up to the proportions it did without John List. For sure. For sure. So at the time of its cancellation in June of 2011, it was the longest running show in Fox's history with 24 seasons. Mm. And... I, I found an interesting interview with John Walsh, the, the host of the show, yeah, talking about the case. So he said that the show received letters and a petition from friends of the List children. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't just the cops. So they got like actual letters, like the the acquaintances, the friends, they had not given up yeah. in all of this time. And yeah. so this, you know, weird show comes along. And they're reaching out. There's a petition. It's like, please, anything to try to find this guy. Uh-huh. And then the FBI came in. Yeah. Because it's a cold case. And they had already spent over a million dollars and not God. a single clue. Wow. So it was this constellation of the public outreach plus the FBI. Because at the time, the show was turning down 150 cases a week. Oh, my God. Wow. Even in its very beginning. And Walsh helped pick the John List case. And he said it was because of that community outreach, plus he felt challenged by the FBI. Oh, so interesting. Yeah. And it certainly wasn't easy. I mean... According to Walsh from the interview and, of course, Kirsten in last episode, so many obstacles along the way. Chief among them, there's no internet. (laughs) Right. Uh, There's no such thing as computer aging. And the photo thing of cutting out all recent photos, having no record of that. So having like more than a 20-year-old photo as your base. Right. Which clearly didn't stop them. And the show led to List's arrest. And I mean, truly, I've never in my life seen anything like the bust that was made next to the photo of him. Right? I know. How in the hell could it have been so spot on? I mean, it just almost seems like trickery of some kind. It's so spot. I mean, the glasses, the glasses just kill me. Yeah. So speaking about the arrest in particular... Walsh said, quote, it was our first big capture. It was on the front page of the New York Times. It ran a picture of the bust. People in New Jersey were thrilled. It launched the show. Yeah. End quote. Yeah. Totally. So, like I said, a lot of the success of this incredible show is traced back to this case. And it was so successful that the show itself is a staple in pop culture. Mm-hmm. The Simpsons season one episode, Some Enchanted Evening, features a parody of America's Most Wanted called America's Most Armed and Dangerous. (laughs) And it featured a profile of Miss Botts, the Simpsons babysitter, who is nicknamed the Babysitter Bandit. (sighs) Then in season six of The Simpsons, John Walsh appeared as the host of Springfield's Most Wanted, you know, a parody (laughs) version of the show. (laughs) And it was designed to serve as a lead-in to sort of the cliffhanger from the previous season. Mm -hmm. 
It was also referenced during the episode Lisa's Rival, in which the name of a character, Milhouse Van Houten, is mentioned because he's going to be featured on the show. Mm-hmm. It just really is that interesting synergy of both being on the same network, mm-hmm. but also The Simpsons was is so well known for pulling in pop culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just as a fun tangent, the other connection with The Simpsons is that after America's Most Wanted was canceled, The Simpsons became the longest running show in Fox history. Oh, interesting. And I believe The Simpsons is the longest running show, period. I think, yeah. Well, and the thing is, around that time, again, I mean, it's just a completely different media landscape. You're watching them live, and it was a thing. You know, it became a thing that people would watch, you wanted to watch, and you wanted to see, could you find the next person? And so it became almost like, I don't know, a weird kind of warped lottery, like... Would mm-hmm. you be the one to win the America's Most Wanted sweepstakes or something? And I think in an interesting way, America's Most Wanted is like a forgotten relic of the quote-unquote true crime narrative. Absolutely. Where it's always like, this new true crime, this new <laughs> armchair detective. It's like, that was the whole appeal. We watched it literally like, with that in mind, like, oh my God, what if we know someone on this show? Right, right, yeah. Yeah, totally. I think it doesn't it doesn't get the credit it deserves. Yeah. So even beyond The Simpsons, in season six of The Golden Girls, a fictitious mobster, The Cheese Man, boasts that his most recent appearance on America's Most Wanted was the highest rated episode ever. Yeah. <laughs> And then in the 2019 film Terminator Dark Fate, Sarah Connor reveals that she was featured in an early episode of America's Most Wanted and is wanted in 50 American states. (laughs) (laughs) And just sort of lastly, in 30 Rock, Liz Lemon, a.k.a. Tina Fey, mentions that she once appeared on America's Most Wanted playing a woman that was strangled on the toilet. (laughs) But for real, that's Matthew McConaughey's first credit. Is it? Yeah. You got to, oh, you got to check it out. He plays, I don't know, he's in one of the reenactment scenes. It's awesome. Oh my gosh. Yes. I will be searching for that. (laughs) (laughs) So clearly, these ripple effects head out in very unpredictable ways. Yeah. So not inspired by the killing, but a direct result to that episode and the bust. I mean, just the cultural touchstone of America's Wanted in general has so much overlap with the List case. Right. And then the very last piece I wanted to mention about America's Most Wanted before I move into the other culture. So John Walsh was asked in the same interview if he felt satisfied with the sentence that List received. And this is similar to the quote that you have, he's sort of paraphrasing the judge, but he answered, quote, List made this plea at the trial. I'm old and feeble and all this crap, and the judge was fantastic. He said, here before the jury, you might see an older man, but this is the time for the List family to talk from the grave. You're going to jail and you're never getting out, yeah. end quote. Yeah, totally. And well, of and course, it's that same thing as the Golden Gate Killer. You know, it's like... It's hard yeah. to see the monster there, but the monster's there. Mm-hmm. That old and feeble thing, especially with the Golden State Killer, like, and Bill Cosby and yeah. Harvey Weinstein. Yeah. It's yeah. like a go-to defense. It's like, no, you're fucking monsters. Yeah, for sure. And, of course, we know now, List did die in jail. Yeah. <laughs> so, prediction correct. <laughs> Yay, yeah. Judge. Yeah, for real, yay, judge. I mean, that judge, a lot of good stuff. But moving beyond America's Most Wanted, it can't be a whole episode about that. Oh, come on. This case has been a staple in all of our go-to crime programming. Mm -hmm. So 1996, Forensic Files. Mm -hmm. 2002, List himself participated in a TV interview on ABC with Connie Chung. Mm -hmm. 
And most notably from that interview, and you mentioned it already too, Chung asked him why he didn't take his own life if he felt so overwhelmed. And it was that answer. Like that's where it came from was this TV interview that, well, he wouldn't get to go to heaven if he killed himself. And it's just like, do we believe that? You. I mean, maybe with his diagnoses, but like, if there's a heaven, he's not going to be there. <laughs> what well, a he, dumb fuck. He felt pretty sure he could atone, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he was certain. That is probably undeniable, but. I mean, uh, I'm still stressing about that girl that I was mean to in eighth grade. And here he is all <laughs> so confident. <laughs> and then I'm pretty sure any religious dogma if you say, well, I'm going to commit this sin, but it's okay because I'll repent later, you've just undone the idea of repentance. Right, right. Well, I guess it depends on your denomination, Andrew. Blech. <laughs> anyway, uh, there's then a 2003 episode of American Justice that also featured an interview with List. Mm-hmm. In 2015, the story was covered in investigation discoveries your worst nightmare and staying in the world of nonfiction for now taking just a quick look at books Mm -hmm. so we have 1990s thou shalt not kill by mary s ruzik which documents the case and goes into a lot of detail and then the next book is righteous carnage the list murders by timothy b benford and james p johnson And that one was published in 2000, and pretty good. I mean, 3.9 out of 5 stars on Goodread. Mm -hmm. And then in 2006, there was Collateral Damage, the John List story. And that was, the authors are listed as John E. List and Austin Goodrich. So Mm -hmm. John himself was involved in this book. And Goodrich served in the same platoon as List in World War II. And they served together for more than 30 months. And just weirdly, around the time that List went into hiding for killing everyone in his family, Uh Goodrich went undercover as a CIA case officer. Oh, interesting. Just interesting piece of trivia that they served together and they had such like weirdly similar moments for incredibly different reasons yeah but he wrote this book with list or i guess probably not with list but in conversation with list Mm -hmm. and it really puts an emphasis around the post-traumatic stress disorder Mm -hmm. and the murders which i'm sure is somebody who went through the literal trenches together and your search for meaning, like, how could this person I know do that? Right. It makes perfect sense that PTSD would be right at the front. Yeah. And, I mean, I do think that it must have contributed. You know, again, I mean, I think it's just all these things lined up. If any one of them had not been in place, maybe things would have, you know, been different. Mm-hmm. But it also doesn't, like mean he wasn't responsible yeah and then rounding out the books is 2017's death sentence the inside story of the john list murders and that was by new york times columnist and professor joe sharkey Mm -hmm. and that's the most acclaimed out of the book and it has uh 4.2 on goodreads that's decent but moving over to fiction Like most crime stories of this nature, this case has found its way into every hotel room I've ever stayed in by way of law and order. (laughs) (laughs) And and of course it did. I mean, ripped from the headlines, it it would be absurd to not be a plot point in an episode. Yeah. It's also made its way into movies. So... We have 1987's The Stepfather, Mm. which is an American psychological horror film which starred Terry O'Quinn as an identity-assuming serial killer, which Terry O'Quinn, who I know from the TV show Lost. Yeah. It's a, I mean, it's a good movie. It's creepy and spooky. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's loosely based on List. And although the plot's more connected with slasher films of the era, mm. so a bit more horror movie-esque than reality. And, you know, it grossed two and a half million at the box office at that time, and it was well-received from critics. And even beyond that, it gained a cult following. Mm -hmm. It spawned two sequels. Yeah. The very aptly named Stepfather 2 and Stepfather 3. (laughs) (laughs) Lots of creativity in Uh that uh, (laughs) brainstorm. And for the first one, Oakwin was nominated for both a Saturn and an Independent Spirit Award. Really? Yeah. So it was like... Yeah. Pretty successful. I mean, independent independent spirit is reputable. Uh-huh. Saturn is, I mean, sci-fi horror. So with that comes biases about genre. But yeah. you know, the independent spirit was like, oh yeah, that's a legit yeah. thing. <laughs> um, the director was also honored with the Critics Award at the 1988 Cognac Festival. And then the film was also nominated for the International Fantasy Film Award for Best Film at the 1990 Fantasporto. (laughs) And it's been included in Bravo's 100 Scariest Movie Moments. Yeah. So beyond the sequels, there's also a remake that happened in 2009 starring Penn Badgley from You and Celia Ward from the 1990s. <laughs> I couldn't place like one credit, but Seal Award was everywhere. And yeah. I had like this, the biggest like little gay boy crush on her. Well, I mean, she's beautiful. <laughs> it's like there was something about Seal Award and probably her eyebrows where it was yeah. just like, what a handsome woman. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Seal, if you're listening. <laughs> uh, but beautiful for sure. Like now that I have the words to understand but yeah i feel like Celia ward was in everything my yeah. parents watched from the 90s yeah she was big well and ironically the fugitive right oh, yeah yeah but unfortunately this remake not a financial success not a critical success 11 percent approval on rotten tomatoes Ooh, boy not good <laughs> So then on the movie front, we have 1993's Judgment Day, the John List story, in which List is just, the world works in the weirdest ways. <laughs> uh, List is portrayed by Robert Blake. Uh, I feel like, didn't this come up before mm-hmm. he was, oh my God. So Ugh. Blake has, in his acting roles, has played like, multiple murderers that line up with of course he was acquitted in 2001 of the murder of his second wife bonnie lee blakely bakely bakely not blakely Blakely, um and but then he was later found liable by a california civil suit Mm -hmm. so like yeah this has come up in another episode so what the fuck has anybody like you know, just done a quick skim over his whole past and like correlated it with missing people or dead bodies to see. (laughs) Our new podcast idea. Yeah. (laughs) The Robert Blake effect coming soon. (laughs) But yeah, so just another weird intersection of these pop culture ripples. Yeah. And, you know, I want to say, unfortunately, because fuck him but the movie was well received by critics it was nominated for an emmy in 1993 that same year there was another loose connection to the case in the movie theater so the character bill defends foster which was played by michael douglas Mm -hmm. in the 1993 film falling down Mm -hmm. loosely parallels john list's situation of having lost his job yet still goes through the motions of leaving the house every day for a job that doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. And much like List, Douglas's character displays an inability to adapt to the reality of his former employer's apparent lack of ability to realize his economic value, despite his personality flaws. It's like pretty similar, even though the plot of the movie is very different. Right. But I do think that those kind of features became more of a thing maybe not a full-blown archetype but 
I mean, I think there's something so haunting about losing your job and pretending to go to work every day, but I feel like that pops up in different mm-hmm. things from time to time because it's, it is really creepy and haunting. Yeah. And aside from being a financial success, that movie also has 75% on Rotten Tomatoes. Mm. And then that moves us to 1995's The Usual Suspect, mm. a neo-noir mystery film. Yes. Made by and starring some good people and some bad people. Mm. Cough, but cough. Brian Singer, Kevin Spacey, cough, cough. Back when we didn't know they were bad. Yes. So Christopher McQuarrie, the writer of The Usual Suspects, said in interviews that he used List as the inspiration for the character of Kaiser, Kaiser Sosa. Mm. Yeah. And of course, the film, huge success. Right. Macquarie won the Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay. Spacey won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor. In 2008, the American Film Institute included it in its top 10 best mystery films. Mm. Entertainment Weekly cites it as one of their 13 must-see heist movies. Empire ranked Kaiser Sosa number 69 on their 100 Greatest Movie Characters poll. And in 2013, the Writers Guild of America ranked the screenplay number 35 on its list of 101 greatest screenplays ever written. Yeah. So I, I love that movie. Huge success. I yeah. know. It's I know. Uh, that is a good one. And I was just like reading the list because I'd art like I got to this one after Robert Blake, and then it was like, oh, Brian Singer. Ugh. Yeah. It's like, oh, Kevin Spacey. Oh yeah. Oh. <laughs> Uh, I I took this out of my notes, but I'm going to put it back in. I won't have the quote word for word because I like literally deleted it from my notes. But apparently in his Oscar speech, Kevin Spacey was like, and whoever Kaiser Sosa is, I bet he's having a big glass of champagne tonight. Uh. And I was like, you fuck, you stupid fuck. Barf. (laughs) Because I mean, obviously... We know from the screenwriter that that was List, and it's like, okay, you sexual predator creep monster Kevin Spacey. Like, I took it out originally because I was like, we don't need to get into that, but it was so gross. Well, and it's like, there's that thing that, you know, I mean, I don't feel like society should be expected to predict and, like, know the nuance of Uh all of this, right? But in hindsight, it's like... It's so clear in so many cases that monsters can't not be monsters. Like, it slips somewhere, you know? Like, Mm -hmm. no matter how skilled they are, like, there are always things that slip through. Yeah. And The Usual Suspects even had a Hindi language adaptation called Chocolate that was released in 2005. (laughs) That's a strange name. So yeah, the the ripple effects just go in the weirdest places. Yeah, yeah. And lastly with movies, uh, there was a 2020 movie called A Killer Next Door. And it's based on the events of the case that led to the capture of List. Really? It, oh. it wasn't well received. I, uh, I, okay. I was like, well, was it killed by the pandemic? But then the critics, it was also low. <laughs> I checked. I, I was interested. <laughs> So that's kind of the end of the traditional pop culture, but there's a few more cultural uh, impacts from the case that I wanted to mention. Mm-hmm. And Kirsten, you actually alluded to this as well, but I found a quote from forensic psychologist Dr. Clarissa Cole, and she wrote, quote, Before List, family annihilator wasn't a term that many people had heard or even ever used, but afterward, no one could ever go back. And that's the end of the direct quote, but the Mm -hmm. greater context was that the term and the prevalence of family annihilator in our true crime culture today is because of the List case. Right, right. So interesting. I I find that part of it interesting, too, because it's not only, you know, the cases that happen. And I I mean, we always try not to sensationalize or, or valorize the cases in any way, but to me, it's the context and what it does to the society. That's what we always talk about. And in this case, I mean, it changes the way we even think about crime. And again, like the application of the term mass murderer 
to list and to a situation like this when in the past it had only ever been used for like literal genocide. I mean, that mm-hmm. part to me is really fascinating. Well, and essentially what you just said, but with a slight tweak, the way I put it in my notes was like, the part that I found fascinating was how this case changes the vocabulary mm-hmm. for regular people, not mm-hmm. just true crime people like us. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. I feel like family annihilator is a known thing, even with people like loosely familiar with crime. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I, I think it's, you know, for whatever reason, probably like deep in our amygdala or whatever part of the brain controls our lizard brain is like family annihilators are just so difficult to parse. And for that reason, I think are just endlessly fascinating to people, even people who don't think of themselves as true crime people. Mm-hmm. And looking back to 1972, List was proposed as a suspect in the D.B. Cooper case. Mm. (laughs) And that was because of the timing of his disappearance, which was two weeks before the airline hijacking. And multiple matches to the hijacker's description. Mm -hmm. And then probably more so than anything was the reasoning that I found in one of the reports, which was, quote, a fugitive accused of mass murder has nothing to lose, Mm -hmm. end quote. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which we know that doesn't really fit with his MO. Like the logical thinking doesn't imply this type of insane crime Mm -hmm. of hijacking a plane and stealing money and jumping out. Mm -hmm. But List was questioned by FBI investigators after he was captured and of course denied any involvement. Mm -hmm. And although there isn't any direct evidence implicating him and the FBI don't consider him a suspect, his name is still brought up in Cooper articles and documentaries and conspiracy subreddits. (laughs) And to round out kind of this look at the many cultural impacts of the case, I had just one more bit of trivia. So in 2008, John Walsh donated the age-progressed bust Mm. that, you know, of course... led to the arrest and apprehension of List. He donated it to a forensic science exhibit at the National Museum of Crime and Punishment in Washington, D.C. And then in the years since, that collection has later been moved to Alcatraz East Crime Museum in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. Huh. And that is the pop culture legacy of this absolutely senseless crime. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's amazing though. This one this one is one that I think just like gets under your skin and is hard to I, for me anyway. It's hard to really kind of feel like you've digested it and put it away for mm-hmm. good because it's so senseless. It's so it was so avoidable. I mean, it, you know, just all of the things. Yeah. A Mm. really fascinating one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, with that, listeners, thanks for going on this journey, and we appreciate the hell out of you. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to Most Foul. If you've got a tip for a future episode topic or want to send us your own inciting incident for a mini episode, visit our website at mostfoulpod.com and write in. This has been a Facts from Janet production. 